This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Oh, we just appreciate uh, you all and your preparation each and every week. The songs just seem to, to match the text uh, perfectly that we're studying in, in God's Word uh, week after week. And, you know, gospel-rich songs and hymns just prepare our heart for the the study of, of God's Word. We just appreciate you all so much. So we are in the midst of a series called Tell Me the story of Jesus, and we are, we're walking through the gospel of Luke, and we are especially focused in this series on texts that are unique to Luke's gospel, and there are quite a number of them, especially parables that are only found in Luke, and we're going to look at another one this morning. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and we're talking about praying with hopeful perseverance. Praying with hopeful perseverance. Luke chapter 18, if you would find that in your copy of God's Word, and follow along with me as we look at verses 1 through 8 in, inside and on the back of your bulletin. You always have the outline to the message. This will kind of help you, and you may want to just take some notes as we walk through the different uh, points. And, you know, one of the beauties of expositional uh, preaching is we're kind of walking through God's Word, taking apart, unpacking passages like this, is that we, we learn how to study our Bibles. We kind of learn how to take apart a, a text and see it in context and that kind of thing. It's just one of the great things about kind of the, the expositional preaching and just walking through parts of God's Word because we, we see it in its flow and in its context. We're going to see how important that is in this passage today. Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 through 8, praying with hopeful perseverance. Now, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he was unwilling but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect? who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we prepare to dig into it right now, Lord, we pray that you would give us eagerness 
hungry hearts. Lord, give us a thirst for you. Lord, we pray that you would rid our minds right now of any distractions and just help us to lock in on you and be in tune with the way you want to speak to us now through your word and the power of your spirit. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So last summer, our family was able to go to Hawaii for the first time, and I was blown away by the diversity and beauty of the landscape. I mean, it just seems like, you know, as we were driving along through mountains and getting to explore uh, different beaches, it was just one discovery after another. But maybe the most amazing thing for me was snorkeling, because I had never done any kind of serious snorkeling at all, and some of the best natural reefs in the world are off the big island of Hawaii. And, you know, snorkeling just gave me a view of a part of God's creation that I had never seen. I mean, how much of the earth's surface is covered with water? There's a whole world down there that most of the time we don't get to see. And so it was incredible just seeing another dimension of beauty of God's creation. And you know what? God's word is like that too. As we, as we continue to dig into the word, throughout the course of our Christian lives. It's one beauty after another. It's one treasure after another that we keep getting because God's word is just an inexhaustible treasure trove. And even this week in, in preparing for this message, now this is one of my favorite parables. I love this parable. Studied it many times and have always appreciated it as uh, just an incentive to, to, to prayer. And of course, it is that. But what I saw uh, this time and in digging into it more was that there's a huge eschatological element to this as well. Because this is part of a, of a section where Jesus is talking about his second coming. And so there's an element as we are looking forward to the victorious return of our Lord and walking through a world that's often hard, this is a call to pray with hope and with perseverance. So what do we see here in this parable? First of all, I want us to look at the context of the parable. Um, and I actually want us to begin here with, with, with verse 8. Jesus says at the end of verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, if you just read verses 1 through 8 in isolation, the end of verse 8 almost seems out of place. Because, you know, Jesus has been talking about prayer, and this parable is about prayer. And then all of a sudden, at the end of verse 8, he's talking about his second coming. And if you just look at verses 1 through 8 in isolation, you kind of wonder, well, why, you know, the end of verse 8, how does that fit with, you know, the, the rest of this text? But here's where context comes in. Because verses 1 through 8 are actually part of a unit that begins with chapter 17 and verse 22. 
You know, in the original manuscripts of the Bible, there are no chapter divisions. <laughs> in fact, there are no verse numbers either, right? So a lot of times when we read our English Bible, we, 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 we're kind of, our minds are kind of trained to think that the beginning of a new chapter is like a whole different subject, okay? But you need to understand, in the original manuscripts, no chapter divisions. So, you know, often that's, the, that's not the case. Often there's the, the passage at the beginning of one chapter is just a direct continuation from what's happening at the end of the previous chapter. That's the case here. Because verses one through eight are really part of a unit on the second coming of Christ that begins in chapter 17 and verse 22. So I want us to go back to chapter 17 and kind of get the flavor of this section. And let's look at verses 26 and 27 here. So Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You know, imagine Noah in his day, you know, building this massive boat on dry land, there are no obvious differences in the weather patterns or anything like that. And so all of his unbelieving neighbors are mocking him. You know, they're like, who is this God freak who's building this thing on, on dry land? And of course, Noah tried to warn them and tell them that the flood was coming. They just mocked him for that until the day that it actually happened and then they were all destroyed. And Jesus is saying here, it's going to be just like that with my second coming. Because people are going to be doing their thing. The unbelieving world is just going to be going about their business, doing life as usual. They're going to be like, hey, you know, life goes on just like it always has. And these Christians are talking about the judgment and the end of the world and Jesus coming again. You know, and they're just all, they're just, they're nuts. But then it's going to happen and they're not going to be ready for it, and judgment is, is going, to, is going to, to fall. But the days in between, the first coming and the second coming of Christ, are not going to be easy for God's people, just like they weren't easy for, for Noah. It's not going to be easy for us, because we're living in a broken, fallen, sinful world. And we face all kinds of pressures. There are pressures coming externally from without, you know, because we live in the midst of a, of a godless world. So there's outside pressure, and then there's pressure from within, because every single one of us is dealing with a sinful nature. And we're, we're battling with our own selfishness and our, our, our own sin. So there's external pressure. There's internal uh, pressure with our own flesh. And then we have a supernatural enemy on top of all that, the devil. So, so we're battling the world, the flesh, and the devil during these in-between days. These days between the first and second coming of our Lord. So the question is, how do we keep from growing discouraged? How do we keep from losing heart? 
Well, that's what this parable is all about. So let's look secondly at the purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable. Let's check out verse 1. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. First of all, the need to pray always. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray constantly. For the Christian, prayer should be as natural as breathing. We don't have to think about breathing. We just do it. And that's how habitual and how ingrained prayer should be in our lives because we have to remember we're not doing life alone anymore. We're doing life in relationship with God. And so learning to, to stay, as, as J.C. Ryle says, in a, in a prayerful frame of mind as we walk through life, just continually in touch with the, the Lord. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Stay alert. But don't let your prayer life lapse. Don't let, you know, hours go by like when you're not in touch with the Lord. Stay in that prayerful frame of mind. Stay alert. I mean, we're like, we're living like an enemy-occupied territory. We're like special forces that have been dropped behind enemy lines as we walk through this fallen world. Stay alert. Stay, stay prayerful. So pray always. Second, uh, don't give up. We're to pray always and don't give up or lose heart. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, right? Hope of what? You know, Jesus is coming again. All things are gonna be made new. Be patient in affliction. The trials and afflictions of this life are not going to last. Jesus has risen. You know, Tim Keller, um, one of my heroes in ministry who just went home to be with the Lord uh, this weekend, one of the things I, I love that he said was that if Jesus was really raised from the dead, then everything that you're afraid of, everything that you're worried about, it's actually all gonna be okay. Because Christ is risen, he is enthroned as king, and he is coming again in victory, right? So rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, and what helps us to do all of that is to be persistent in prayer. Now again, that's what this parable is about. So let's look at the story, okay? The story of the parable begins in verse 2. Jesus says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. So let's go back here to the beginning of the story in verse 2. Jesus says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect 
people. This is a bad guy. And he's a bad guy in a really big position. He's a judge. But Jesus says, first of all, he didn't, he didn't fear God. This guy was not restrained by any moral principles whatsoever. You know, he has a totally godless worldview. And listen, in a godless worldview, ultimately, morality is meaningless. I mean, if, if, you, are, if, if you are nothing but a, a, you know, a mass of cells, you know, that emerged by chance, and there is no God, no afterlife, no judgment, you have no basis for morality. It is a chilling scene in Woody Allen's film, Crimes and Misdemeanors. And there's this, this, uh, this Jewish family that is sitting around the table. They've just had a meal, and this would have been like in the, you know, the 1950s. And they've lost many of their family members in the Holocaust. And so this family is having this discussion about the, the horror of the Holocaust and the, the evil of Hitler and what had been done to their, their people. And there was one member of the family who, you know, was ethnically Jewish, but who was a committed atheist. And she took her atheism to its logical conclusion. And she hears her family members talking about good and evil and moral and immoral. And she says, who's to say what's truly immoral? Who's to say what's, real, what's evil? That there is evil. History belongs to the winners. That's chilling. And that's this guy. A godless worldview. No fear of God whatsoever. Second, it says that Jesus says that, that he had no respect for people. And it's interesting, the, the word here for uh, respect kind of means to be put to shame. And, and in an honor-shame culture like this one, you know, in the first century in the Middle East, the last thing in the world that you wanted to be was to be put to shame in the eyes of, of people. But you see, this guy has no shame. He has no shame. The only people that he cares anything about are people that can line his pockets with money, people that can bribe him, are people that have power and influence to help him in some way. Well, along comes a person who has none of that. This widow, verse 3. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So in this culture in the first century, widows were in the most extreme position of vulnerability. This is not a culture where, you know, a woman can just kind of, you know, go out and get a job and support herself. And so widows are in like this incredibly vulnerable position economically. And then in this case, somebody has taken advantage of this woman financially. And so she is an absolutely in desperate straits and so she comes before this judge 
asking for justice, and you can imagine the reaction that she got in his courtroom. He just laughs at her. You know, to, to him, she is nothing but an ant to be squashed. He doesn't care anything about her. She has nothing to benefit him. No money, no power, but there's one thing that she had. She had persistence. It says here in verse three that she kept coming. You know, he would walk into the courtroom, there she is. He would walk out of the courtroom, onto the street, there she is, give me justice. He would go to the market, there she is, give me justice. He would walk out of the door of his mansion, and there she was. Give me justice. Yeah, I, I, um, I enjoy running, and this time of year when the flies, the flies come out, if I'm not absolutely just lathered in bug spray. You know, mosquitoes I can kind of outrun, but a fly is different. You know, one of these mayflies gets, gets after you, you know, and, and they're just, they're just it's, all, it's all over you. And, it's, and you know, you're, it bites you on the head and I'm pounding my head, you know, and the, the fly's in my head by this point. Just, it's, it's just all, all around. That, that was the situation. Like, she just, she's not going away. And so finally, he just capitulates. He just gives in. Verses four and five, for a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. And this is actually really funny because the, 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 the phrase here for wear me out came from like the boxing ring. It literally means to give, a, to give a black eye to. You know, and so the image here is of, you know, this swaggering, macho judge with all of his power being cornered at the end of the ring and being slugged by this little widow. He's like, she's beating me up. I can't take it anymore. And so he gives in. Not because he cares anything about her, but simply to get rid of her. That's the story. All right, now, let's look at the encouragement of the parable. The encouragement. Because Jesus is going to bring all of this together in a brilliant way. Verses six through the beginning of verse eight. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Now here's the mistake that a lot of people make with this parable. They put God in the position of the judge. And they draw, they draw the conclusion that the parable is about, oh, you know, well, you know, if you'll just keep on pestering God, you know, then eventually he'll pay attention to you and, and, uh, and, and, and grant your request. Okay, that's kind of not the point. 
Because actually the point is that God is nothing like that judge. God is filled with compassion. And furthermore, if you are in Christ, you are nothing like that that widow because she meant nothing to that judge. And if you are in Christ, you are one of God's own. You are one of his elect. You are one of his chosen ones. And Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He loves you. You are his child if you are in Christ. And he is a compassionate father who delights in answering your prayers. Jesus says in Matthew 7 and verses 7 through 11, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I tell you what, I would move heaven and earth to help one of my kids if they were in need. But you know what, I can't move heaven and earth but there's one who can. There's one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And you just go to him and you ask him and he delights in answering prayers. But then Jesus says this, the end of verse eight. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? We can so easily lose heart because it seems like his coming is delayed. I mean, Jesus is talking about swiftly and he's talking about God not delaying, but sometimes it can seem like it's, you know, it it is delayed and we yearn for all things to be made new. We yearn for his return and it seems delayed. It seems like a long time to us. But remember 2 Peter 3 in verses eight and nine. Peter says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so when Jesus comes, will he find us busy about the work that he's called us to do? making the gospel known to all people so that they can come to to repentance? Will he find us prayerfully, hopefully, looking for him? I love what New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says. Bach says, the son of man, when he comes, the son of man will be looking for those who are looking for him. Are you looking for Jesus? You know what, the Lord's Supper one of, the, one of, the, one of the, the, the reasons that Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper is to help us look forward to his coming. Now, we usually think of the Lord's Supper as about looking back, right? Looking back to our Lord's death for our sins. And yes, it is that. But it's also 
a looking forward. Because 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we take part in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are looking forward to an even greater feast that we're gonna have in eternity and a new heaven and earth when Jesus makes all things new and he leads us in this feast. And so one of the reasons that Jesus gives us this is to help us to look forward, to not lose heart, to know that he is coming again in victory. We look back to his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. We look forward to his victorious return. It's all there in the Lord's Supper. Let's prepare our hearts to take it together. So Father, we thank you for this special meal that you ordained. Lord, we, we can never find, ultimately, our, our hunger and our thirst can never ultimately be filled by anything in this world. It can only be filled by you. And so Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper as believers, we are reminded that, that, that only Jesus can satisfy the, the deepest needs of our souls. And as we take it, we look back. We look back to the fact that we have a Savior who shed his blood for sinners like us on the cross and who rose from the dead that we can have forgiveness and eternal life. And we look forward to a Savior who is coming again in victory to make all things new. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. So if you are here as one who follows Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the, the, you know, this is for you. It's, it's, it's for those who are in Christ, those, those who have made Jesus a Savior and Lord and King of their lives. But if that's you, then Jesus invites you to take part in this special meal that he ordained. He knows the needs of our lives. He gave us this because he knows that we, we, need, we need things that are concrete and vivid to bring us back to the centrality of the gospel. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks, broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. And then in like manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus said, drink all of you. And so Lord, how we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the fact that you loved us so much that you gave your son 
whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for sinners like us that we can have forgiveness and new life and eternal life. And Lord, we look forward to your victorious return when we will take part in the great marriage feast of the Lamb in a new heaven and earth. Until that day, make us faithful, faithful to look to you, praying with hopeful perseverance, faithful to be serving you day by day, faithful to be looking eagerly, hopefully, expectantly for your return. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.